Hello and welcome to Taxpayer Talk. I'm your host, Peter Williams, a member of the board at the New Zealand Taxpayers Union, fighting for lower taxes, less waste and more accountability. In this edition, Rob Campbell. He's the former chair of Health New Zealand, or as the government insists on calling it, Te Whatu Ora. He's been relieved of his position by the Minister of Health after making some injudicious comments on his LinkedIn page about the National Party's alternative Three Waters policy, in which he disagreed with the opposition stance on co-governance and called it a dog whistle. That was too much for Chris Hipkins and the Health Minister Aisha Beryl, so Mr Campbell was dismissed. In a wide-ranging discussion with Taxpayer Talk, Rob Campbell appears not in the slightest bit remorseful for what he said, and he believes that people like him, who are not career or even salaried public servants, but are outside appointments to the boards of government entities, should be free from the restrictions of political neutrality placed on the public service. But as you'll also hear, Campbell says, because his and the National Party's views on co-governance are so widely divergent, it would have been untenable for him to carry on in the job in the event of a national-led government after this year's election. After Rob Campbell, Taxpayer Union Executive Director Jordan Williams will offer his thoughts on the situation. And then in our War on Waste segment this week, Taxpayers Union researcher Dan Merry assesses the effectiveness or otherwise of a $1 million campaign for truancy awareness. That's all coming up. First, Rob Campbell. Rob, thanks for joining us on Taxpayer Talk. Do you have uh, any regrets at all about what you wrote on LinkedIn at the weekend, which led to your sacking as the chair of Health New Zealand? Uh, No, not about what I wrote. Uh, I do regret that it has caused the uh, distractions and difficulties that it has for me and for some government ministers and for Te Whatuora. So I regret that, but not what I said what I wrote. So did you think there might be consequences about what you wrote when you put your fingers to the keyboard on LinkedIn? Well, what I wrote is not that unusual for me. I've uh, strongly expressed my opinions on uh, LinkedIn often, but also in many other forms of media uh, over the years, uh, and there wasn't anything that broke new ground in in what I had to say in that particular post. So I don't think anyone from any perspective would have been the nature of what I was saying. Uh, so, yeah, that would be my comment about that. But you would have been well aware of the, the code of conduct that you were supposed to, um, to, to behave under when you signed on for the role, didn't you? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and, you know, not my first rodeo, as they say. Uh, I mean, I've been in private, small and large organisations and in local and central government agencies and governance roles for many decades. So uh, I'm, I'm not a fool about these things. And I'm very well aware of the code of conduct, you know, and people like to pick individual bits out of this uh, code. And uh, it's evident that, uh, you know, people can interpret it different ways. But, you know, if you go to the code, uh, what it opens with is uh, statements about uh, we are honest and open, we are fair, we speak up. Um, Those are important uh, concepts uh, to, uh, to follow. And I think that the provisions which cover political impartiality are to be read in that context and it's hard to see how that could happen uh, any other way and indeed when you get to the piece about uh, political impartiality which I assure you I've read many times and considered well before this matter came up it's clear that the code provides for acting in our private capacity, so no one can argue that one doesn't have a private capacity uh, in 
these matters. Uh, the code provides for it. Um, it. It says that we avoid any political activity would je- that would jeopardise our ability to perform our role. Uh, and I don't believe that I've always had regard to that. I don't think anything I've said or done uh, genuinely jeopardised my ability to perform my role because my performance of the role is, has never been questioned. Uh, but also the other thing is that it could erode the public's trust in the entity. And again, I do often have regard of that. I'm very conscious that particularly with a new entity like Tafatawara, uh, it's important that we build and hard to erode trust, which has only just been created, but that we build public trust in the entity. And it's always been very apparent to me that uh, my role in the various comments that I make uh, about public matters uh, are seen largely as uh, contributing to the role of Tafata or that's certainly the feedback that I get. So it's not something I ignore at all. I'm well aware of the code. I've considered it in the whole very carefully. Now, having said that, it's obvious that the commissioner, the public service commissioner, interprets the this provision at least more strictly than I had thought was appropriate. Uh, it seems that government ministers, or certainly the Minister of Health, uh, follows that quite strict and uh, a limitation uh, view of the code. It's not one I have previously shared. Uh, what I said to the minister in amongst apologising for that was that I was very uh, happy to uh, meet and talk through uh, our mutual understanding of that code. Uh, it's, uh, and uh, you know, hopefully, I hoped that that would happen. Uh, it didn't. Um, uh, so let's see whether the Minister for the Environment takes a different view. So as we speak, uh, Rob, you still have the job as chair of the Environmental Protection Agency. You haven't been dismissed from that role as yet, and we're talking here on Thursday morning, the 2nd of March. Yeah, that's right, yeah. All right. Uh, What about, though, your, your, your severe criticism of the National Party and of its leader in your LinkedIn post? You would surely be aware that there's an election this year, and that there's, you know, some really, chance, really, <laughs> some chance that Christopher Luxon might be the prime minister. After you have criticised him and that particular policy so much, would it have been tenable for you to remain as a chair of uh, Health New Zealand if the uh, National Party led a government and Chris Luxon was the was the prime minister? Well, I, Chris Luxton would have Luxton would have to speak for himself on that, but it certainly wouldn't be tenable for me. I have no intention of never had an intention of chairing Tafata Ora while it presides over the uh, demolition of Takafai Ora. So, on that basis alone, uh, given that that is a policy that the National Party enunciates, I don't expect it to change before the election. No, I mean, there's no way I would have stayed. It would have been untenable for me. Whether It wouldn't have mattered whether Chris Luxon had declared his undying love for me. Uh, I, w- I still wouldn't have stayed. Um, and that's that's an important point, you see, that... But those comments to me, Rob, say that, that, this, that, that you are uh, an intently political person, and I think we've uh, come to know you along those lines over the years. So you're intensely political, but the public service, the health system, is supposed to be apolitical. So surely therein lies the conflict, doesn't it? Uh, well, I don't believe that it does on, as I say, on the interpretation that I've put on the code, uh, which which I'm happy to discuss. Be wrong, but uh, can I make these points uh, about it? As you know, Peter, I've worked for organisations uh, on governance and organisations uh, which span people from the extreme left to the extreme right in my career. And I have uh, never had a difficulty uh, in working uh, with my own political views, always publicly expressed in various ways. 
uh, I recall when I first joined the Bank of New Zealand, the National Party president was the deputy chair of the Bank of New Zealand, Sir George Chapman. I never had any problem working uh, with George. And uh, through my career, from you know, from Bill Anderson to uh, whoever you like to name, just I've been on governance boards with people of widely disparate, widely disparate publicly held views. So uh, that's never seemed a difficulty to proper governance to me. So that's the first point I'd make. The second point I'd make is that I do think there is a distinction which the code doesn't currently make between career public servants and people who come on to Crown Entity boards to serve for defined limited periods. And that's obviously what I was as chair of uh, Te Whatuora. Uh, someone who is a career public servant and who aspires to head a ministry or take a senior position in a ministry, uh, I think those people do have a requirement to maintain a level of a high level of, of political impartiality so that they can serve uh, various governments of various hues. They understand that and it's it's in the nature of their profession. And I've seen, I've just heard recently uh, of a statement that Ashley Bloomfield made, which uh, made that point in respect to uh, chief executives of public service departments who were career public servants. On Crown Entity Boards, and it's an important issue, this one, we do bring in, and it's vital that we do, people from commercial or social active, socially active positions uh, so that we get the kind of diverse and broad governance which is in modern parlance is, is the appropriate and best form of governance and, and the one that's advocated, for example, by the Institute of Directors. So in that instance, you necessarily bring on people not all of whom will have strong political views, but some of whom will have strong political views. So they'll have expressed those in the past, they will express them in the future. It's pretty unrealistic to say that they can't continue to express those while they hold the role, subject to this quite proper control that they don't do so in a way which attacks their own organisation or indeed erodes public trust in that organisation. So... I think the drafters of this code of conduct probably had it about right, but it's left room for misunderstanding about exactly how it falls. So do you believe that no matter who the government is uh, into the future, there will continue to be, shall we say, jobs for the boys, jobs for the girls, politically uh, motivated appointments, because that's been the way in government board appointments in New Zealand ever since uh, the 1980s and we started having government boards. Do you think that will continue on? Uh, but will there be even tighter controls put on what board members can say, particularly board chairs can say from now on in light of what's happened with you? Well, I think a couple of things possible. Um, one is that, I mean, not all board appointments to Crown agencies are sort of political hacks and I'm not quite sure where I fit in that anyway, but but there are some who are clearly political appointees. Uh, it'd be very unfortunate, I think, if people were not appointed or even worse, were dissuaded for accepting invitations uh, from playing a role on such boards uh, if they felt that every action they took was going to be scrutinised from this narrow point of view in that light. I think we all accept when you go onto a public sector board you have uh, you know, have some limitations in 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 what you can say, uh, particularly about that organisation or on matters related to it. Uh, but uh, you know so that would be that would be a real worry. The other real worry I have, and, and I've just in amongst the flood of uh, correspondence of various kinds I've got since this blew up, includes a lot of people who are career public servants and. Uh, uh, who hold uh, political views, who are now worried that, for example, their social media uh, posts might be scrutinised and, and used against them. So that is something I hadn't really considered for myself, but I can see why they are concerned about it. Yeah, because we come back to just the, the matter of free speech in a liberal democracy and the ability of private citizens to say what they think and on whatever platform uh, happens to uh, to be in front of them at the time. 
Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm not a sort of an absolutist about uh, this stuff. I do believe there are sort of issues of, of balance uh, and and kind of restraint that are needed, which which I do reflect in in the kinds of things uh, that I've said. But uh, I mean, if you take something like co-governance, it is a pretty openly uh, known political issue, uh, and uh, you know the the view that I took on it, as it happens, uh, was a view that is largely embedded in the Tafatawara structure. So it would be a little bit odd if I didn't think that not having co-governance was a good idea somewhere else, wouldn't it? Indeed. Why is co-governance really necessary in New Zealand? Well, can I address it in health because I think specificity is helpful. Uh, in this. So there, there are two areas and uh, uh, of this. One, one is a, a Tariti-based view that there are special issues associated with an Indigenous population reflected in New Zealand's case in Te Tariti o Waitangi uh, and that, that imposes certain obligations which courts and parliaments have, have further defined and, and entrenched. So uh, that that's a a line of argument. Which it's one which I personally and, and politically uh, have an affinity for. Uh, but I realise not everyone shares that. In health, um, you could uh, put that view completely on the shelf. Um, I don't want to, but one could put it completely on the shelf and say, how do we effectively? meet the kind of health inequities and access and outcome that we can observe around various populations. And Māori is very significant in this area. There are others. There are Pacific peoples. There are some specific health issues for for other groups, including other ethnic groups, uh, which need specific and, uh, and direct attention and focus. And all of the health research from all around the world, recent health research, supports the view that the most effective way of addressing those kind of access and outcome issues is to have uh, a focused attention on them, to have that focused attention led by people from the group concerned, and indeed uh, controlled uh, and delivered from the group concerned. Uh, now there's, as I say, it's, it's a bit silly to say all. I did just say all, and I take that back. But the overwhelming uh, health research from around the world, which I've addressed myself to, supports the view that having structures like Takafiwara, whether there was a treaty or whether there was an Indigenous set of rights or not, is simply the most effective way of resolving those issues. Yeah, but I've talked to health researchers on this podcast before, Rob, and they suggest that uh, health outcomes are not based on ethnicity, but more on economic circumstances. So how do you balance what you've just said against that research, which uh, suggests that if you are at the lower end of the socioeconomic scale, your health outcomes are not going to be good regardless of your ethnicity? Well, let me address that. Um... I don't ponce about, I think there's no question that people uh, at the bottom of the class structure uh, have worse health outcomes than people at the top. That is equally demonstrable. Uh, and in uh, the case in New Zealand, uh, the working class and the beneficiary class associated with it are significantly brown and, and within that brown... Yeah, but not totally are. brown, Rob, is what I'm saying. No, no, no one's, no one's saying that. Trust, look, I'm, I'm very clear that our level of provision to working-class families uh, and low-income families, if you prefer that terminology, uh, uh, throughout New Zealand are a real issue, whatever your ethnicity and uh, they have to be addressed. It's a significant part of the work that uh, Te Whātawara, uh, has to do. But even allowing for that, there are, in terms of delivering services, it is apparent from the research and from practical experience 
that there are cultural and ethnic issues associated with access to and outcomes for healthcare that you have to address. It doesn't take away in any way from the interests of low-income people of whatever their ethnicity that have to be addressed. But you still need to address those specific populations. Indeed, the research will tell you that that is true, for example, for women as well, uh, that there are many issues where a service which doesn't properly distinguish between uh, males and females in terms of the services that are offered and how they're offered and where they're delivered and when they're delivered will lead to some disparities and often negative disparities. So this is a really interesting area of workforce health disparities, uh, but you can't escape from the fact that in New Zealand, uh, if you don't address the issue of Māori health and Māori health outcomes, you will end up with the negative statistics we have now. But we're not going to have a separate women's health service. We're not going to have a separate men's health service. Can't you see that there is just so much pushback against this idea from, shall we say, the majority of the population because they believe it is one particular class of people, not all of whom have bad health outcomes, one particular group of people who are getting the privilege of their own special health service with their own special health administration? Well, they're quite loaded words, special and, and privilege. Um, the the, the Māori Health Authority, uh, Taka Whaiora, uh, is uh, addressing issues of, of Māori health and working with Kaupapa uh, Māori Health Services. But those Kaupapa Māori Health Services don't cater only to Māori. I've been to many of them. And if you go to any one of them, you will find many park out people going there because they prefer that style of access and the style of service that gets delivered to them. So those services are not uh, not exclusive. So if if I were a uh, a, a rich uh, Maori entrepreneur of some kind, let's say, and uh, I wanted to get health services, I'd probably reach for my private insurance card. Uh, and get it that way, uh, rather than going to a Kopapa uh, Māori service in Manarewa, for example. Um, and obviously that person would do that, uh, nothing wrong with that at all. Uh, but those sorts of services are not reaching uh, all Māori. Although, in fact, as I say that, Ngāti Whātua Rake have struck up a relationship with one health insurer and are using that structure to provide enhanced health services to their people and, and good on them too. It's a very interesting uh, project that they're engaged in. Uh, but I don't see these as matters of, of privilege or, or special. Uh, they're all happening within the one health service. There's nothing like an overspend on Māori health services uh, to the Māori, uh, proportionately to the Māori population. Uh, in fact, I think most of the research suggests there's a significant underspend. Um, but there's a doubling uh, up so in administration, though, isn't there, Rob? Uh, I mean, we've got two separate boards, two separate chief executives, so that in itself says that uh, we're spending money on administration for two separate health systems. Is that absolutely necessary? I, I understand there's even a, a chief nurse in the Murray Health System and a, and a chief nurse or head of nursing in the in Te Whatuora. So do we really need the doubling up of, uh, of people in top jobs? Well, you know, most of those people uh, have actually come out of the existing service, so they're transfers. There'd be very few that were not transfers of resource from one part of the health service to the other. So I wouldn't be too, uh, I wouldn't be too concerned about there being two titles. I'm not a big title person anyway. But most of those people uh, are shifting around either from Manatuhaora or from Tafatuora or from uh, other Maori provision somewhere else that was funded provision anyway. So. The fact that those titles exist doesn't tell you that there's any more money being spent on it. But I think the, the total health restructure, when Andrew Little announced it, when was it a couple of years ago, was going to be in the vicinity of $750 million, maybe even a little bit more. So that's money going on health restructuring. Yet the new Dunedin Hospital, for instance, is being downsized before it's even built. I mean, 
you can see how well, you see how patients, uh, uh, the, the the public, uh, get confused about this. All this money being spent on the front office, but not on primary health care. Yeah, well, it it could be that there's a case for people toning down the in the content of their announcements uh, about things. Uh, probably not the right place to get into a debate on the Dunedin Hospital, but the downsized term is is not. Uh, not really accurate. The only building that's been removed is actually a pavilion. All the same services will be delivered. The, the project has been restructured. As any private sector or public sector project going through that same period of design and, and revisiting and uh, value engineering and all those things that big projects do, like I did down at Commercial Bay uh, when I was on the Board of Precinct Properties, that went through a similar number of changes in size and scale, etc. That's perfectly, perfectly normal out there in the real world. So I, I think you read far too much uh, into that. In terms of the costs of restructuring, there are some costs being incurred in restructuring, and there are also enormous savings. I mean, uh, without talking out of school, uh, the you know Tafatawara is now about to start has realised some relatively minor uh, savings as a result of the amalgamation of the systems. It's now in a position where it can move on a much more substantive reorganisation uh, that will be. Uh, taking hundreds of millions of dollars uh, out of the cost structure to apply at the front line from overhead costs. So as always, when you when you do a restructure of any kind, doesn't matter where you do it, you will spend some additional money in the first instance to get a greater game down the track, and that's about to start happening in Tafatora's case. Well, I think the public is getting a little impatient for progress, aren't they, Rob, because you know your, your waiting lists are longer than ever. There don't seem to be, well, there's no targets uh, for reductions of waiting lists and for elective surgery and the like, the way they, they, they used to be. So are you saying that uh, the system is going to become more efficient sometime in the future, even though you won't be there to lead that? Oh, yes, I am. I, I think it is becoming uh, more efficient in some aspects. It hasn't yet in others. Given that I'm no longer chair of Te Whātua, um I can probably say that there does, in my view, need to be in Te Whātua a greater level of targeting on uh, specific deliveries, uh, for example, in relation to uh, waiting lists, which is planned care in another name, uh, and accountability for delivery. That is uh, anticipated in the structure. It hasn't yet been uh, evidenced, but uh, my expectation is that you will be able to see evidence of that happening in the relatively near future, unless there is some change in direction, which I'm not aware of. But Labor government policy appears to be to drop things like targets on waiting lists, targets for elective surgery. Uh, are you saying that that's going to change because the administration of Te Whatua is going to push the government for it? Well, Without going all yes, Minister, on you, uh, I couldn't possibly comment on that. <laughs> so Dr Richard Stein, who's a gastroenterologist, uh, former Hutt Valley DHB member, has been uh, on broadcast media in the last couple of days saying that since Te Whatua was set up, uh, nothing has changed. Nothing's changed since Health New Zealand started. No change or vision or increase in staffing levels. Uh, here's a man who's on the front line of clinical care. Is is, is he right uh, and is he justified in being impatient for change? Uh, well, um, I don't think I've met Richard, but I'm familiar with him and his role and, uh, and his views uh, and good on him for expressing them, may I say, in my current situation, whether they're in accord with government policy or not. Uh, and, of course, they do go rather outside of the uh, clinical exemption, which is in the collective agreement for these people. But I say uh, good on him for what he's saying. That is his view. I don't think that that is correct. It's not for me to be making the specific answers now in my current role. Uh, but to say that there are no changes is uh, simply wrong. Whether he has additional staff in his area 
uh, I can't say. I'm not familiar enough with the specific area. Uh, but there are increases in uh, nursing staff and other uh, staff going on, and there are more in train. Is it enough? Nowhere near. Uh, and is it a major focus of work? Yes, it is. So, look, I respect his view. He's involved. He's uh, uh, passionate about it. Uh, he's got strong views. Some of them are not wrong. Some of them are. Can we go back to the matter of co-governance, which uh, we discussed a short time ago? You say that you are in agreement with the concept, yet the Prime Minister, when he made his his policy bonfire a week or so ago, uh, addressed the matter of co-governance with the Three Waters policy and, and told his new Minister of Local Government to go away and have a think about it and come back with some new ideas, the hint being that Chris Hipkins wants co-governance out of the uh, the structure for Three Waters. So even though you are very much in favour of it, you've criticised it in your LinkedIn post, which has brought about your demise from this job. Do you think that there is now a reluctance amongst the upper echelons of government uh, to be enthusiastic about the concept of co-governance anymore? Well, I am becoming a bit yes, Minister. What I would say to that is you might very well say that I couldn't possibly comment. <laughs> All right. Uh, Rob, just finally, do we need a medical person to chair Health New Zealand from now on? I don't think there's any reason why not. Uh, there are uh, medical people, of course, on the board and on the most significant medical issues in clinical governance. There are, there are obviously uh, experts uh, from clinical perspective brought in. Uh, so do I think it's necessary that the person has uh, clinical capability? No, I don't. Uh, but there's absolutely no reason why they shouldn't have. So is it uh, important to have people with specific medical skills? Because, again, uh, people in the medical profession say that medicine and health is different to running, say, a commercial property company or, or running a hospitality outfit like you have done or a retirement village company like you have done in the past. Uh, medical people say you've got to have specific skills to be chair of uh, a health organisation. Do you not necessarily agree with that? No, no, I don't. I mean, I respect, I respect the view, and you, you absolutely need to have uh, medical skills uh, present at the table. Uh, it'd be ridiculous, I think, to have a board that had no medical skills uh, and deep medical skills uh, present at the table and in in the relevant parts of its uh, of its governance structure. Uh, so I, I kind of agree, but whether the job of the chair really is one of, of, of pulling together the various strands of thought that you need at a board table rather than uh, being uh, of one view. Uh, and there is an equally, I hear the view expressed, but there is an actually equally strong view that you should not over-medicalise or over-clinically emphasise the leadership of a uh, of a public health organisation. So that it, I think it's a misunderstanding of what the role of a chair of such a large organisation is to say that they have to be uh, they have to be a, a clinical person. Um, there's some really interesting research, actually, in terms of, of all sorts of leadership, not necessarily chair of health boards. Uh, but uh, there is a lot of research on what leadership clinicians really respect. Uh, and it always suggests at all that the leadership of the board should be clinical. Rob, I thank you for your time. Thanks for talking with us. the executive director of the Taxpayers Union, Jordan Williams, has been listening to that discussion with uh, Rob Campbell, and he's with me now for his thoughts on the situation. So, Jordan, he's allowed to, uh, to comment on the National Party policy, but should he be expressing those thoughts in public? There are rules that there is a code of conduct for people like him 
uh, on the boards of government entities. He didn't abide by them, so he's sacked. What about the overall philosophy, though, that people from outside who are appointed to government boards does it really matter if they make comments such as Mr Campbell has done? Yeah, he raised an interesting distinction where between temporary board appointments or uh, where a minister trusts a particular group of people to be the ears and eyes for an agency, you know, serve at the board and bring in external people. And he's basically arguing, look, I shouldn't be under the same obligations as a, as a professional public servant. That is a development from his argument he was making um, a few days ago where he was basically saying, look, the the interpretation of the State Services Commission or Public Services Commission now, uh, code of conduct is incorrect, I'm not muted. The thing is that he has ignored is, ironically, under uh, Chris Hipkins, when he was Minister um, of Public Service, or what used to be called the um, Minister for the, for the State Services Commission, um, introduced new rules specifically applying to board members to stop this very thing happening. And what Mr Campbell was, I mean, I, whether it's cute or a misunderstanding, it's certainly not orthodox, is by saying that the values of we speak up apply here. No, the, that the we speak up is an acknowledgement that the duties of political impartiality or neutrality are not just a duty on the public service, they are also a protection because it allows uh, the public service to give ministers and decision makers advice they do not necessarily want to hear. Doing that in public is clearly political and particularly, and I want to just, I think that there's an element of this that hasn't really been examined and that is also in the way and the tone, and frankly, the, the personal attacking nature for the leader of the opposition, this wasn't just about policy. He was making a direct personal attack against the leader of the opposition on co-governance and a very issue for which Rob Campbell acknowledged himself is a very political issue. You can't say on one hand that I'm a guardian of this alternate pathway of, towards race-based public services, although he wouldn't put it like that, uh, on the one hand. And of course, I'm going to go out and attack other areas of policy that reject that approach, but that doesn't affect my job because it doesn't affect health. This, no, 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 no. Politics does, 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 does not work like that. At the end of the day, They've done he Rob Campbell has done exactly what the rules are, uh, are designed to prevent, and that is not letting the politics get in the way of your job, or using your job to war politics. And of course, when I asked him towards the end of the discussion, that Chris Hipkins appears with his, his instructions to Karen McAnulty as the new Minister of Local Government, that um, Mr McAnulty should go away, look at Three Waters and come back with uh, a structure without co-governance in it. Uh, therefore, it would suggest that the Labour leadership is not all that enthusiastic about co-governance anyway. Uh, Rob Campbell didn't seem to want to engage in that particular discussion, which I found quite intriguing, to say the least. Yeah, well, he's, he, he's in it both ways. Look, we fired off a complaint to the State Services Commission, or sorry, the it's now the Public Service Commissioner, uh, first thing Monday morning. And I put in that letter that in my professional lifetime, I have not seen such a departure from the requirements of political, political neutrality. Uh, and I stand by that. I think that there was, I, I can count the number of times that we've ever called for a resignation on one hand in the nine years of the Taxpayers Union. This was one of them because it was so far out of the norm. And you could see that people that worked for Health New Zealand were liking the post, engaging on the post, and even putting aside the politics um, totally on the actual on the issue. This was, for lack of a better term, a rant. You know, you're saying I mean, it's full of spelling mistakes. I'm not suggesting he was drunk or anything like, like that, but it looks like a rant. And... I come back to something that I know a lot of taxpayers' union 
supporters are concerned about is a general increasing lack of professionalism in and around the public sector, including on the boards. I'll give you another example that alarmed me last year. A member of the Reserve Bank's board calling the New Zealand Initiative, which is a, a excellent think tank here in Wellington, business funded but, um, think tank, that has probably been the best at doing very thoughtful analytical uh, criticism or, or reviewing of the poor performance of the Reserve Bank. And this board member that sits on the Reserve Bank was tweeting that these guys were alt-right or far-right um, uh, um, uh, neoliberal a-holes or, or, you know, that sort of level of uh, social media engagement. And now that board, I don't think, is covered by the code, but I we um, wrote to the chair to point this out because that nothing to do with rules. It's simply unprofessional. Re, go back and read the, the actual post that he made. It is personally abusive of, um, of Luxon and the National Party in a way that just is, I know that's common on 2023, but it represents for me just a total lack of professionalism, which clearly he does not see. Yes, and there's, there's also a basic thing called good manners, Jordan, which you would like to think that people in positions like him and the fact that he's been in the highest echelons of New Zealand business, you would like to think that they would have good manners in their dealings with other people because, after all, business surely is about relationships, isn't it? Well, well not always. I mean, the, one of the <laughs> benefits of getting business people, hard-nosed business people, is they get things done and they can be, you know, they can, they can be aggressive. It's, the, it's that it was done in a public forum. And he was saying, oh, no, it's personal page. And as he said when, when we approached him to, to join the podcast, that it was done on a personal page. Well, the page literally lists his roles as the chair of Health New Zealand, the, the, the chair of AUT University and the, what are the, the Environment Protection Agency. You, you can't have it both, both ways. There are some people that think Wellington's public service is so politicised anyway. It is so left-wing woke um, that you know, they, they, they have no time for conservatives. We get a lot of reports from conservatives within the public se sector that just find it impossible um, because of the the acceptable opinion is so narrow. And there is an argument that maybe we should go like I, mean, I personally disagree. I don't think it's the right way to go. But there are some people that think that uh, we should have a more politicised public service, and an incoming government should be able to sack chief executives at will. Well, we're kind of creeping there, ironically, with these very boards. But it's very difficult to have a hybrid. And for rightly or wrongly, New Zealand has inherited a public sector that must be able to work with the government of the day and the think that what Kai boshed Rob Campbell, as you so ably brought it out of him, is that there's no way he'd be able to do that role if there was a change of government or yeah, Luxon prime minister. He said if Chris That's Luxon, the beginning and the end of it. Yeah, if he said Chris Luxon was the prime minister, it would have been untenable. He would have resigned. Just uh, to, to wind up with, though, uh, Jordan, these are very much hypothetical situations now because he's no longer in the job, but he was claiming, he was claiming that there was about to be great efficiency in the health system because of the changes that uh, Te Wara Health New Zealand was making under his leadership. Did you see any, any evidence of uh, cost efficiencies, of waiting lists being shortened, of uh, waiting times in ED uh, being lessened under his leadership in health? Because I didn't. No, um, and as you, I thought that it was interesting, his, comment, his lack of comment around um, targets. Peter, we did about three or four years ago, the Taxpayers Union did half a dozen reports about health productivity in New Zealand, and we struggled. I don't think we got any media attention for it. Um, it's... The, the health productivity story in New Zealand is unbelievable. If we could just come up to the average of the OECD in terms of bang for buck or productivity, it would be the equivalent, this is off, off memory, of increasing the spend by more than a third. It is, we're so far behind the average for OECD in terms of what we pay and what we get. There's a huge amount of, and I suspect it's got no better, 
on his claim that there's going to be cost efficiencies as a result of this restructuring, look, I, I don't have any objective evidence on this. We haven't done any subsequent reports because the only one we could get up stupidly was about hospital car parking, which, you know, great little story for the taxpayers' union and, that you know, the tax on getting unwell. But the actual bigger issues that, and that with our media environment, we just we published them, we sent them to our supporters, but it was very difficult to get any sort of serious coverage on it. Just on the, that these that this reform is going to re lead to more efficiency, I call BS on that. Right now, throughout the health system, there are equivalents being hired for, for race-based Māori roles. For example, it's um, my partner who is at Starship, uh, I understand through her that there's roles within Starship, the head of nursing, for example, where they are introducing head of they have a head of nursing that stays the same, and they have a head of nursing Maori. I I don't know whether it, that's responsible for Maori patients or Maori staff, but you cannot tell, and that's apparently right through the whole sector. You cannot tell me that that is going to lead to cost efficiency or better outcomes, actually. I mean, we would accept that at the frontline level, there should be cultural, um, uh, you know, um, ambassadors or appropriate things to ensure that no matter your, your, your background, you feel comfortable and confident and able to communicate um, in the health environment. Put, stacking management with this sort of parallel structure, literally within the hospital, I just, it, 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 just stretches credibility to say that that's going to result in efficiencies. Jordan Williams, thank you for your time on Taxpayer Talk. We now look forward to see who's going to be the new head of Health New Zealand, Te Whatuora. Thank you, Peter. This is Taxpayer Talk. Now we continue our series looking at waste in the public sector. In recent times, the Prime Minister has announced a $74 million increase in support for truancy services to try and get some of the 100,000 kids who regularly wag school back into the classroom. But before that, there was a $1 million spend on truancy awareness. The question is, why? Here's the latest edition of War on Waste. Hi there everyone, and welcome back to another frightening addition to our War on Waste segment. This time we'll be looking at the Ministry of Education's spurious spending amidst a national school attendance crisis. Recently the Prime Minister announced a $74 million package which would bring in 82 truancy officers in an attempt to prevent a further decline in the already dismal school attendance statistics. To many, it comes as a pragmatic and necessary decision to what is clearly a crisis within our schooling system, but some Kiwis will be asking why this took so long. Because when you look at the data, 2020 began with only half of students regularly attending school. This is explicable with the advent of the COVID pandemic. 2021's Term 1, however, only showed a 68% regular attendance rate, which is a 4.3 percentage point decline from Term 1 in 2019. It only gets worse from there too, as Term 1 attendance rates are always higher, diminishing as the rest of the year goes on. 2022 has been shocking, with Term 2 regular attendance rates across all schools sitting at 39.9%. That's 10 percentage points worse than Term 1 during COVID. This time, however, the government doesn't have a global pandemic to excuse such disastrous outcomes. It's not as if Chris Hipkins wasn't aware of the issue as well. Last year as Education Minister, he spent considerable resources, $1 million in fact, on a special campaign called All for Learning. This particular campaign was created by the Stanley Street Agency. Stanley Street is the new place of employment for former Labour Minister Chris Farfoy and sitting Labour MP Penny Henare's partner. According to Stanley Street, the Ministry of Education approached us with a challenge. Over the last few years in Aotearoa, Attendance and participation at school had been in steady decline, with COVID further contributing towards this downwards trend. By August 2022, almost half our tamariki were not regularly attending school. The value of in-person learning had taken a hit with parents across New Zealand, 
who had forgotten that the value of physically being at school extended far beyond the books for their children. Kids were missing out on all the other moments that play such a critical role in shaping their futures. So the Taxpayers' Union sent an information request to the Ministry asking for the goals, KPIs, briefing documents and results of the campaign. We were appalled to receive the following answer. We did not provide Stanley Street with any briefing documents. So no instructions were written down, no parameters set for a campaign worth $774,000 to the agency. But that was nothing compared to what we would learn next. In our OIA, we asked for an explanation or summary as to how this campaign addresses the problem of declining attendance in New Zealand, and in what ways this campaign improved attendance. And we were told that for a million dollars, the campaign had no impact on attendance rates. The ministry informed us it, in quotes, was not expected to have a direct quantifiable impact on attendance rates itself. Of the million dollars in baseline funding, the Parnell ad agency was paid $774,000, inclusive of media costs of $480,000 by the Ministry of Education. Also included in the more than three quarters of a million dollar fee was $98,500 for focus groups, $70,000 for impact assessment reports, and $56,600 for baseline research. The campaign was in market for just over a month from the 23rd of August to the 30th of September 2022. All of this taxpayer money spent without any expectation of increased attendance rates. If not increased attendance, what was the purpose? Awareness is a commonly cited goal of government ad campaigns, but awareness is usually only useful insofar as it, it actually serves to improve the issue at hand. If awareness isn't the problem with respect to the truancy crisis and the government knows this, why then were they so keen to dump a million taxpayer dollars into something so blatantly redundant? Stanley Street developed 167 creative assets to support a multi-channel, multilingual approach, deployed across 521 television spots, across 16 TV channels, 688 national radio spots, 43 busbacks, 3 in-school full video screens, 281 posters in 7 key locations, and digital billboards and ad shells programmatically. All of this to raise awareness and change perceptions about attendance and engagement as a national issue. The Ministry of Education says they sought to make attendance a national priority by one, helping parents, whānau, ākonga and communities understand the importance of regular attendance and engagement at school, two, enabling one story to be consistently and repeatedly heard, and three, enhancing awareness of regular attendance as an issue at a regional and local level. It's disturbing how all of these public bodies won't actually commit to solving the problem, instead only promising awareness when they're on record. All the language is hedging, so that awareness can be touted as an undeniable success of any spending, and the bureaucrats in government remain unaccountable for their decisions. Taxpayers deserve better. A government that honours its relationship to those who fund it would not be afraid to commit to actual lowered truancy rates as an outcome of spending. They ought to risk failure. It's the only way for them to actually be accountable to their stakeholders. We'll be happy when our government promises to make New Zealand a better place, not just a more aware one. And that is it for this edition of Taxpayer Talk. If you'd like to get in touch, you can find me through peter at taxpayers.org.nz. Until next time, this is Peter Williams for Taxpayer Talk.